Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to The Weeds. I'm Jane Coaston, and I've been really interested in an intraconservative battle that's taking place right now. No, it's not about abortion or tax policy or liberalism. It's about pornography and the role that pornography plays in our society and the danger, in their view, of pornography on youth and on everyone, really. And a lot of conservatives are thinking very deeply about ways for the federal government, specifically the Department of Justice, to combat pornography. Not just the porn industry, but the use of pornography and the availability of pornography more widely. One of those people is Robert George. He's a titan in the world of social conservatism. He's the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. And he's been called the most influential conservative Christian thinker by David Kirkpatrick of the New York Times. He's also recently written a letter to Attorney General William Barr asking about how the federal government attempts to go after obscenity and pornography. We had a really interesting conversation, and I think you might be intrigued by his answer to a couple of questions about what social conservatives might do with a loss at the Supreme Court or at the judicial level. So... Let us know your thoughts at the Weeds Facebook page. And without further ado, here is Robert P. George. Robert P. George, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Jane. Thanks for having me. You've been involved in thinking about conservatism and specifically social conservatism for a long time. There's a New York Times article from 2009 that I believe says something to the impact that, like, you know, if there actually were kind of like a Catholic superstate, they'd be meeting at your house. <laughs> well, um, in my mixed Jewish Christian house. Yes, that's true. <laughs> which, you know, that, that that tends to be how that happens. But I think um, I'd like to start with something that I have written on previously and you've been talking a lot about, which is the current intra-conservative debate over pornography and obscenity. And on January 13th, you sent a letter to Attorney General William Barr asking for clarification regarding Department of Justice policy on the enforcement of existing obscenity laws, which is an interesting issue because, as you likely know, Attorney General Barr was very involved in obscenity prosecutions during his first round of involvement with the Department of Justice under the H.W. Bush administration. And the debate over how obscenity is prosecuted by the Department of Justice has gone back and forth over the last 20, 25 years. 
But I think it's interesting, and we will post the letter that you sent in show notes along with some other materials, because you make the argument not so much from a moral standpoint. And there have been a lot of writings on pornography as a moral ill. But you write about it in this letter as a harm to children, a physical and social harm. Can you tell me a little bit why you decided to focus on that element, specifically for this letter and specifically with regard to how obscenity laws are enforced? Yes, certainly, Jane. I do believe that obscenity creates great moral harms. And I think the moral argument against obscenity needs to be made. I think we need to recognize that there are such things as moral harms and take them seriously. But especially uh, pornography as it has developed in the second half of the 20th century, and especially since uh, electronic means of transmission have become available, creates not only moral harms, concerns for public morality, but also public health and public safety harms. We know a great deal more than we did uh, when Hugh Hefner launched his mainstreaming of softcore pornography, so-called softcore pornography in the mid-1950s, about the psychology of pornography, especially about porn addiction. Uh, people have always known that pornography in the main targets uh, women, treats women as objects, as instruments, uh, degrades women. Uh, this has become uh, worse and worse. The addictive qualities of it, the damage, the harm that's done from porn addiction uh, has become more and more uh, evident. It's also become clearer and clearer over time that uh, the porn industry benefits from the exploitation of women who are used in uh, the production of pornography and even the trafficking of women into the trade, into the business. Uh, many times women from overseas, from Southeast Asia, uh, from South Central uh, Asia, often women who do not speak English, very many times uh, women who have no way out, nowhere to go, uh, no friends uh, they can appeal to. Uh, who are really trapped uh, in the industry. Uh, so in addition to the moral harms, what I perceive now, and I'm far from alone, uh, and this is across the spectrum, people on the left as well as people on the right understand this, that there are significant public health and public safety issues uh, that, that are created by obscenity, especially contemporary obscenity, modern obscenity, uh, and obscenity that's transmissible uh, electronically. And a final point on that is, of course, because of the electronic transmission, uh, any kid, a uh, nine-year-old kid, 13-year-old kid, boy or girl, can easily access even the most hardcore uh, obscene imagery uh, on his or her cell phone. Uh, that's a really serious issue, and it's a tough one for parents, and it's a tough one for society to deal with. The general test for what obscenity is, the Miller test, as detailed in the Supreme Court case Miller versus California, is notably kind of vague. Because this has been an issue, what even is obscenity, that people have been debating about for decades. And so the current Miller test is whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole would appeal to the prurient interest. And in a piece I wrote about this, this is it's been noted that this is vague. In, and in one court case in 2008, an attorney attempted to or planned to enter into evidence the Google trends for a, the city of Pensacola, Florida, to show that based on what people are Googling, his client's pornographic material did not meet that standard. So do you think mm. that we should update the Miller test? Is this something that should be taken to the courts? Because I think if the Department of Justice responds to your question, says, how does the Department of Justice define obscenity with we go by the Miller test, it seems that we've just kind of wandered into a circle here. 
An additional element of the Miller test is that the uh, imagery or depictions must lack any serious artistic or scientific or other uh, value. Mm -hmm. uh, the test is somewhat vague, and I dare say if we upped the obscenity prosecutions in the way that I'm urging General Barr to do, that would generate cases that would be uh, contested. There would be challenges to the constitutionality of certain of the prosecutions, and it would give the courts and eventually the Supreme Court of the United States itself an opportunity to revisit the Miller test and see if perhaps they could get a bit more precision into the test. But I think that there are now so many clear cases, cases that are not near the border. The trouble with the Miller test is there's this gray area. But even under Miller, there are so many cases that are not near the border that you could keep the Justice Department and prosecutors around the country busy for the next 30 years prosecuting the the clear cases. I, 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 I'm reluctant really to even describe some of what is out there now and available even to, to children who can access right. it so easily. But uh, if you'll forgive me for doing so, I'll just talk about one particular image that's got a good deal of publicity on Pornhub. It's an image of a apparently teenage girl. Perhaps it's an older model, but she appears to be a teenager strapped by her ankles and hands and mouth to a board or to the ground. And she's being penetrated by a machine while she's being burnt with hot wax. That's not near the boundary. That's not in the gray area. There's nothing in the Miller test that would leave any ambiguity there. It seems to me, at least I'd certainly be happy for a prosecutor to take that court sort of case to the jury and defy the defense uh, to demonstrate any serious artistic or scientific uh, value to that sort of thing. So I think there are clear cases so we don't have to wait for further uh, guidance from the Supreme Court of the United States for General Barr to do what I think the Justice Department should do, which is start to actually enforce current law. I want to make clear, Jane, I'm not asking for any changes of the law here. We might want to down the line. We might it might benefit the country to have some more precision if the Supreme Court's court revisits. But right now, my letter to General Barr simply asks him to enforce existing law. That's his job. It's the job of any attorney general. Enforce the existing law. There are reasons for that law. There are reasons now that have become really quite urgent because of exploitation, because of addiction, because of harm to children. We should reconstitute what we had when uh, Barr was attorney general uh, many years ago, and that is the task force, the working group within the Justice Department that is focused on obscenity. It's interesting you used the idea, and you mentioned this in the letter, about the idea of pornography being potentially biologically addictive. And Pascal Emmanuel Gobry wrote a piece for Journal of American Greatness that was a science-based case for ending the porn epidemic. But one of the things he notes is he smokes cigarettes. And he's aware that cigarettes are bad and addictive, but he still does that. Obviously, we have limited access to cigarettes, but we did not ban cigarettes. We curtailed their use and their availability, but we did not ban them. In an ideal world in which you are the grand poobah of everything, <laughs> so to speak, where in this kind of in the realm between limiting and curtailing its use kind of as we did after the end of Prohibition, where alcohol's availability, it's still available but was limited, or with cigarettes, or are you looking towards eventually an all-out ban on pornography? Well, we're talking about obscenity. Right. Uh, so it's that portion of pornography that qualifies under the Miller test or whatever amended test the court would use as obscene. And, and I think it is important that we not 
become fanatics who the next thing we know are banning the, uh, the Song of Songs in the Bible because <laughs> of the uh, sexual imagery uh, there. I'm not uh, advocating prudery or blue-nosism. Uh, I want to protect children. I want to protect men. I want to protect uh, families. I want to protect women who are exploited uh, by the porn uh, industry. Now, how do we do that? Well, anytime we're talking about government regulation, whether it's a public morals or public health, public safety, whether the reasons have to do with public health, safety, or morals. There are different strategies, and prudence is required. Prudential judgments are required as to what the strategies should be. Should they be non-coercive strategies? Should they be nudging? Should we be creating private rights of action? That's actually how we struck the decisive blow against the tobacco industry, by permitting private parties who had been victimized because of smoking by the tobacco industry to sue the tobacco industry. That's another way of doing it. Instead of criminal law prohibitions, private rights of action. I think there's probably room if we reform the pornography laws, if we go back to the question of how exactly to regulate obscenity, which I have not done yet in anything I've written to the attorney general or anyone else. So far, I'm just saying enforce the existing laws. But if we move to what I think would be the next step and think about what else we can do, what reforms of laws, what changes can we introduce, what new ideas can we introduce to combat pornography or obscene pornography in any event, I think private rights of action uh, that uh, people who are addicted to porn, uh, analogous to the private rights of action from people who are addicted to cigarettes, could very well work and would be appropriate. Same for women who've been uh, exploited. Now, there's some uh, law under which uh, I think they could get some protection there, even as things are, but we might want to improve those uh, those laws as well. So I'm not giving you a master strategy here once for all, Jane. I think there are different dimensions of it. I think different strategies can be employed, and they're not mutually exclusive either. It could be that we want to ban on the hardest core stuff, but when it comes to stuff that's nearer the boundary line, maybe we want to discourage, maybe we want to do that by private rights of action, maybe we want to stigmatize. And it can't be just government. I think the institutions of civil societies, families themselves, schools, churches, uh, what uh, Burke called the little platoons, what Tocqueville mentioned as being so critical to the success of American democracy, they've got to be mobilized as well to protect people against the harm that's now being done by the obscenity plague. The reason I'm fascinated by this issue is because it's not just obviously about pornography or obscenity, but it is about what the goal of government and what the goal of conservatism more widely should be. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes back to something you've thought a lot about, which is the idea of natural law. What is the law supposed to do? And that's been a debate um, among Catholic theologians for centuries. And so famously, St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine had two different ideas on what the point of government was to do. So St. Augustine basically felt that the purpose of government is to keep sinful things in line, whereas Thomas Aquinas believed that we should be working towards the idea of the common good and the idea of natural law, the idea of you use a pen to write, the job of a pen is to write. What is the job of a person? And that's been kind of the debate about what natural law is. And I think that that's where a lot of your writing has stemmed from. But it is interesting to me that we're having this conversation about conservatism, about conservatives deciding what should government be doing, and perhaps should government be getting more involved in encouraging the common good as they see it, 
And not just saying, essentially, as long as you don't break these specific laws, do whatever you want, which is a very different approach than I think libertarian-leaning conservatives would take, which is why there's been this break among conservatives. How do you see that split taking place between the idea of government as kind of the bulwark against murderers and thieves or government as we can make people better? Well, we're having within the conservative movement today and certainly in conservative intellectual circles, but even beyond the intellectual circles, just more broadly out among people, what might be called a lively discussion. It's, it's very lively. <laughs> very lively. Sometimes it gets pretty hot discussion about whether we should lean in and perhaps very decisively lean in a more libertarian uh, direction or whether it's not a sellout uh, to collectivism or socialism uh, to – carve out a little larger role for for government in advancing the common good. That is beyond simply preventing people from doing concrete immediate harm to uh, other people. I am not a libertarian myself. I have a lot of respect for libertarians. Uh, I'm glad there are libertarians in the conservative movement. I think that the considerations that they bring to bear are ones that uh, other conservatives like myself need to take very seriously and learn from. But I don't end up in the conservative um, camp. Myself Now, that doesn't mean I'm a socialist and doesn't mean I'm a, a collectivist. My view is the one that uh, is historically associated with what might be called the natural law uh, tradition, the view that you identified with uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas himself, of course, was an Aristotelian, a follower of Aristotle. Indeed. Uh, as I am uh, myself. So you might refer to my view as an Aristotelian view. And, and that's the view that law and government have a role in – encouraging good things and promoting the common good more broadly than simply protecting individual rights narrowly conceived. But, and here's the big but, that role has to be subsidiary, secondary, limited. The ideal of limited government is one that libertarians and social conservatives or libertarians and traditional conservatives share. Libertarians want it to be even more limited, I suppose you could say, than other kinds of conservatives. But those other kinds of conservatives still want it to be limited. So even when it comes to moral questions, we can't have it be the case that we're relying primarily on government to teach moral values or on government to keep people in line when it comes to uh, uh, justice and the common good. We need to rely primarily on the institutions of civil society, again, those little platoons, again, those institutions that Tocqueville saw as so essential to the flourishing of American democracy, the family, religious institutions, churches, synagogues, mosques, temples. It doesn't matter the particular faith for these purposes. They're very important questions of religion about who's right and who's wrong and whether Jesus is the son of God <laughs> and these great theological questions. But when it comes to uh, the role that's got to be played in civil society by religious institutions, all of those religious institutions can play that important role and historically uh, have done and have done in many different cultures. And it's not just religious institutions. It's all manner of voluntary associations, people getting together to help to preserve the values that uh, people need to hold and understand and believe in, the virtues that people need to have in order to lead successful lives and be good citizens, live in harmony with others, cooperate with others, make things better for everyone. That's what the common good is, making things better, not just for this individual or this tribe or clan or group, but for everyone. So yes, I, I think that role the government does have a role beyond simply the narrow protection of liberty, although I think that's critically important. 
It's got a role beyond that, but it mustn't replace or displace or usurp the authority of families, churches, and other religious institutions, voluntary associations, and so forth. So let's call that subsidiarity. And and that's something I, I strongly believe in, the principle of subsidiarity. It's interesting you say that because I just did a podcast for the Ezra Klein Show, which is a, another part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, with Tim Carney, who wrote his book, Alienated America, essentially on the breakdown of those institutions, on the breakdown of both secular and religious organizations, which he believes in some way helped to lead to Donald Trump's primary victory specifically. Essentially, people looking for that kind of communal experience who weren't able to find it in churches, but were able to find it in backing this particular candidate. It's interesting to me that you mentioned the value of subsidiarity, but there does seem to be a sense from some conservatives, and I'll quote from a piece from Terry Schilling, who wrote in First Things, the law can serve as teacher and a guide to encourage positive behaviors and discourage negative ones. Do you think that for some conservatives, there's an idea that because those institutions have fallen away, because the influence of those institutions has fallen away, which I think is also important. I think it's not so much about fewer people going to a Roman Catholic church, which is the tradition I grew up in. It's that the Roman Catholic church, for many reasons, both good and bad, has lost moral authority over mm-hmm. the majority of Americans, obviously because of the sex abuse scandal that I think, for many people, dis- displayed hypocrisy writ large. Do you think that there's a sense that because of the breakdown of those institutions, more conservatives are like, well, we still have the government? Maybe politics isn't downstream of culture. Maybe we have to start with politics and then get to culture. Well, I think the idea that that politics is downstream from culture is a half-truth and therefore an untruth. I do think that politics is part of culture and that just as culture shapes politics, politics shapes culture. So I think we have to care about politics, do the right thing in politics to a large degree in order to reshape culture. Now, one of the things that needs to happen is we need to rebuild the institutions of civil society. We need to rebuild the family, not not just in some communities, but in all communities, on all sectors of society. We need churches and other religious institutions to get their act together, to be better, to eliminate the hypocrisy, to be what they claim to be, so that they can serve the very important function of transmitting values, transmitting virtues, assisting families in doing those things, that they are uniquely in a position to do when they're healthy. We need to revivify voluntary associations Look, for example, at the Boy Scouts, which is, as we're doing this interview, declaring bankruptcy because of problems that are similar to the sex abuse problems in the the Catholic Church. The Boy Scouts have done a world of good for for boys, for young men, for generations. Uh, They've done great things. They've been a very important source of the transmission of values and virtues, and yet they allowed themselves to fall into decay. They allowed bad things to happen. They're paying a heavy price for it now. And so are we because we depend on institutions like the Boy Scouts, those kinds of voluntary associations to play this important role. Now, Jane, if those institutions aren't rebuilt, it's not as if nothing will step in to replace them. Something will, and that will be government. Just as when public health and public safety break down, somebody's going to step in. It's going to be the government. When families break down in in communities, and and basically you have communities in which there's family dissolution, it's not as if no one's going to come in to take care of children or to try to do the best they can. The government will come in. There'll be no choice but for the government to come in. Will the government do it well? Nope. The government will do it badly. Certainly not as well as institutions of civil society beginning with the family would do it if they were 
if they were healthy, but that is what's going to happen. So I would warn conservatives, don't imagine that if we simply take as, as a given nothing, something we can do nothing about, the breakdown of institutions of civil society and then look to the government to save us, if that's what we think, we're deluding ourselves because that's not going to work. Government can only do its service for us, its job for us, when its job is subsidiary, when the primary responsibility for health education and welfare, for the transmission of values and virtues that are essential to successful lives and good citizenship can only do its job when the primary role is being played in those things by institutions of civil society. Where do you think, within the conservative movement, thinking about the law in this way came about? Because I think for some people who are outside of the conservative movement or observers, this is a rapid shift from the Tea Party era, the Tea Party era that there were a host of articles that were arguing, like, this is the libertarian moment. And you heard from former Representative Ron Paul and a host of libertarians and libertarian-leaning conservatives who essentially argued that, like, no one should be stepping in, that the individual is sacrosanct. Individual actions and individual freedoms should not be restrained in any way, which is in part why every Libertarian Party conference gets very strange. But also, this is a concept that I think for many people, that was a conservatism that they remember. This is the Obama era of we need to limit the size and scope of government and the government getting involved in determining what the common good is or trying to direct Americans towards a concept of the common good is bad and overstep. And it's interesting now to think that, you know, with the breakdown of institutions, that government could, again, do a bad job, but come into this. So can you tell me a little bit about what's the intellectual history of this idea of kind of restoring the use of government in some ways, as you mentioned, as a subsidiary, but restoring the use of government to establish kind of a common good? Because to me, that harkens back to the progressive era, which— had ending child labor, good. Eugenics, bad. Woodrow Wilson, very bad. Yeah, I mean, to their eternal shame, uh, the progressives embraced eugenics ideology. Right. and. Uh, but it was that idea of we can improve yeah, man. Improve we can, things, yeah, yeah, we can. The idea of self-improvement it was like, no, 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 we kind of need to push you along. Yeah, And some of that is we need the Pure Food and Drugs Act, and some of that is certain people shouldn't be allowed to have children. Exactly. Well, Jane, here's my understanding of the history of the thing. The unity of the conservative uh, movement from the late 1930s through the Second World War and onward until the collapse of communism in Europe uh, was underwritten by common enemies. Right. <laughs> So libertarians, Burkeans, social conservatives, uh, all the different elements of the conservative, conservative movement were bound together by anti-communism, by fear of further Soviet encroachment in the world, and by opposition to progressivism, which I think uh, conservatives were right about this, of all descriptions were right about this, which tended to displace the institutions of civil society or even commandeer them, take them over to invade the territory of institutions of civil society. Well-intentioned, but big government, bureaucracies, agencies, and however well-intended, often the law of unintended consequences uh, uh, played itself out. So conservatives were united about that um, with their own triumph in the Reagan 
presidency and then uh, the collapse of communism, the principle of unity disappeared. Right. Uh, you know, when the, you when you don't have a common enemy, it's very challenging. You know, it's it's been interesting because I've yeah. I spend a lot of time talking to conservatives of all stripes, and it is fascinating to me how much not just how much they disagree with progressives or liberals, but how much they disagree with each other. Yes. And that sense of what brought you together no longer really exists. Perhaps in the early 2000s, you can make the claim that conservatives were united against the concept of radical Islam. But now that seems to be less of a sticking point for people. Well, ISIS is gone. Uh, Al-Qaeda seems to have been uh, uh, gotten under control. So again, the common enemy has disappeared. Now, I don't want to say, Jane, that the only way that different elements of the conservative movement can uh, be bound together is by having a common enemy. Because I think there are some shared values. Often the emphases are different. Often the prudential and practical judgments are different. But take libertarians and social conservatives. They agree on the importance of freedom. They agree that freedom is a value. They believe in individual rights. They believe in freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. They believe in the principle of due process of law. But they have disagreements about whether liberty is an intrinsic good or merely an instrumental and conditional good. They agree it's a very important good, but they disagree about some theory there. And they can also disagree in practice in some areas. Is the freedom to smoke cigarettes or to use obscenity uh, truly a fundamental uh, freedom? Is it something that the government should not only not try to get involved with as far as banning things are concerned, but should the government be neutral about it? A lot of libertarians think that the government should be neutral about cigarette smoking or neutral about obscenity. Even those conservatives who are not libertarians who would stop short of government prohibition of those things would probably say, nevertheless, that governments shouldn't be neutral about them, that government, at least in its non-coercive roles, ought to discourage the use of cigarettes, the smoking of cigarettes because of health reasons, or the use of pornography because of health and moral reasons. So I don't think that uh, that what we have here is an alliance of people who have nothing in common at all except for a common enemy. But there are differences. And here's one of the ways to think about the difference between traditional conservatives, including social conservatives and libertarians. Very often for libertarians, the basic conception is that there are two key players, the state and the individual. And then the whole game is how much power should the state have and how much power should the individual have. And the goal is to, for a libertarian, is to decrease the power of the state as much as possible. Get it down if possible to being just the night watchman state that protects people against coercion and deception and give as much power as possible to the individual. For traditional conservatives, including social conservatives, there's something missing from that picture. Yes, there's the state. That's important. Yes, there's the individual. He or she is important. But then in the middle are the institutions of civil society, the families and the churches and other religious organizations and the voluntary associations. And they have an important role to play, too. And there should be authority in their hands, not the authority of law that belongs to the state, but nevertheless, important social, cultural, moral authority so that the individual isn't just naked as against the state, 
those institutions of civil society function as, and here the term that's used in the literature is mediating institutions. They are intermediate between the individual and the all-powerful uh, state, the, the all-powerful in the sense of having monopoly on violence, the state. So for me as a traditional conservative, as a social conservative, I think we need to rebuild and re-empower those institutions of civil society. They can do most of the work, even when it comes to things like public health and public morals, most of the work in discouraging kids from getting addicted to cigarettes and discouraging kids from using, uh, get, accessing obscenity. The state's role, if it has a role, and I think it can in some of these areas, needs to be subsidiary. And within that domain, it's got to decide when to nudge, when to prohibit. Those are prudential judgments. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. You've used and I've used uh, two terms that I want to dig into because I think that they are the fundamental root of how we think about this. So what I'm going to ask you might sound a little bit basic, but I think it's important. First, the idea of public morals and I think more importantly, the idea of a common good. For me, as a libertarian-leaning person, the idea of a common good, I immediately say, who's common good? For, for what purpose? Who's good? Who's the common? And I think in an environment as the United States, as an increasingly diversifying country, not just racially, but religiously, for example, there have been so many religious freedom cases that have gone before the Supreme Court that have not been about majority religions, but about been about minority religions, churches that practice Santeria, about which uh, former Justice Anthony Kennedy essentially said, like, your religion doesn't have to make sense to be protected. The religious That was a 9-0 decision by the Supreme it's Court. It's a great decision. The, the it's one of my right favorite. United, yeah. It's one of my favorite. You're talking and, about the Hialeah case. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, the federal RIFRA comes about, again, from left and right coming together, not because of the religious rights of Christians or Jews, but because of the religious rights of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. The Jehovah's Witnesses, who have been kind of the canary in the coal mine of religious freedom for decades. How do we think about the common good when my religious tradition or the 
Hylia religious tradition or the religious traditions or even the social traditions of so many different people in this country differ so widely. I think from the libertarian perspective, that's kind of where you're like, just get out of it. Just get <laughs> out of the business of trying to decide what it is. I know that um, you were staunchly opposed to gay marriage and wrote a lot about that. And I think for a lot of conservatives after the Obergefell decision, you heard from some conservatives essentially being like, I'm a libertarian on this issue. We should just get out of the government, should just get out of this industry, so to speak. How do we think about the common good when what is good and what is common even is so up for debate? Yes. Well, uh, it can be a very difficult undertaking. There's no question about that. So let's just go back to basics. What is the common good? The common good is the goods, the values that any particular community is built around. Every community will have a common good, whether it's a political community, a religious community, the community of business firm. Aristotle actually has a little sort of uh, categorization of these types of communities. And different types of communities have different common goods. But in each case, the common good of that community is constituted by the values, the goods, the purposes, the goals, the aims, the things worth having that give members of the community reason to collaborate together reason to coordinate their behavior together, sometimes negatively by staying out of each other's way, sometimes positively by cooperation. So there is the common good of, let's say, the religious community. It might be the Santeria. It might be the uh, Native American church. Uh, it might be the Catholics. It might be the Zoroastrians. Whatever the religious community is, it will have a common good. The town, whether it's a village in New Hampshire or whether it's the city of New York, has a common good, and the nation has a common good. Now, it's important to sort out jurisdictions. Right. And, and while there are going to be some blurry lines, on the whole, we have a pretty good sense, I think, of what is in the domain of the nation, for example, national defense, uh, making sure that there aren't trade barriers among the states and so forth and so on. The Constitution is largely concerned with uh, identifying the matters that are within the jurisdiction of the national government, leaving all the rest of the states and localities. We have a pretty good sense in this country. Again, there's there's blurry areas and gray areas, but we have a pretty good sense of what's for the church and what's for the state. And if it's for the church, the state stays out of it. And if it's for the state, the church stays out of it and, and so forth. We've done pretty well, I think, on that. For a pluralistic country, it's amazing. We have not had religious wars here. The Europeans have. Yes, there's this idea of Europe as just unified. I'm like, no, the Hundred Years' War, the Thirty Years' War. And it's so funny when you drill back to like the causes of these wars. I'm like, you get much more of that? It sounds, I mean, the Great Schism, which we have the split of the Catholic Church or even the brief po point in which we had three popes yeah. because of small differences. But anyway, I digress. I think <laughs> it's— Well, if I could just f yeah. uh, uh, conclude the point. Yeah. D despite the fact that we have this wide religious pluralism, we've not only not had wars— of religion. You know, we've had differences of opinion, yeah. certainly about that, sometimes been pretty vigorous, but we have not had anything like what the Europeans have experienced. Religion has flourished here. All the different faiths have flourished here in a way that they have not in Europe. America to this day, while it's become a bit more secular in recent years, to this day, it's far more religious in Europe. The Catholic Church is doing better here than it is in France. Right. Evangelical Protestant churches are doing better here than in Germany or in Denmark. In many communities, Jewish faith is flourishing here more than in Tel Aviv, for example, in Israel. So America has been hospitable to religion. 
not only despite, but perhaps in part because of our religious pluralism. But to get back to the concept of the common good, within any particular community, it's far from unlikely that from time to time, sometimes often, you'll have disputes about what the goods are that we should be pursuing, what the goods are that give us reason to collaborate. So within religious denominations, sometimes they're the the moral equivalent of civil wars because we'll take the Methodists most recently. Some Methodists want to go in one direction on the big important moral issues. Some Methodists want to go on the other. Same for towns, same for cities, same, same same for nations. We have big debates, big national contests over big issues. Sometimes there are elections that make all the difference in the world, like the 1860 uh, election or, we, you know, w- whether we're even going to have a nation would depend in large measure on who's going to be elected there. And here, I think the answer is not libertarianism, because that's just, I think, basically trying to award the victory to one side in advance. I think the answer is democracy. It's what our founding fathers called Republican government. When we have disagreements, which we will, even important, profound disagreements, we in the end decide that we're going to resolve them by constitutionally prescribed, agreed upon constitutionally prescribed democratic Republican means. We're going to stick to our procedures and principles in resolving them. And if I lose, which as a social conservative, I can say I have a lot of experience with, if I lose in the big public debate, at least I know that I lost in a fair fight. I lost in a situation in which I had the opportunity and those on my side had every opportunity to make the case to our fellow citizens. If we fail to persuade them, well, too bad for us or maybe too bad for them. <laughs> but we can't say that we were robbed of the of of the victory. Now, in some issues, especially important social issues, that is complicated by the fact that courts which are our least democratic branches of government, the judiciary being our least democratic branch of government, courts have come in and short-circuited political debates and imposed solutions by means that I think are not actually consistent with the constitutionally prescribed means. So that's a criticism of Roe versus Wade or Obergefell versus Hodges that has less to do with the policies that were finally put into place, which I think could legitimately be debated than with the question of what the procedures were used to settle those policies. And there, I think, where we went wrong constitutionally is in allowing courts to resolve them as opposed to using the constitutionally prescribed democratic means of resolving those issues. It's interesting you bring that up because I think for some social conservatives specifically, that idea of we always lose has led to some saying, okay, Their support for Donald Trump, for example, is partly because of judges and the courts. The idea that this is not a democratic means of making these decisions, but this is our last stand. This is our bulwark against the intrusion of liberalism or something like that. This is the Flight 93 election Right, exactly. And this is, I I think, think Rod Dreher's argument sometimes. That's right. There's a lot of truth in this. A lot of people turned to Donald Trump, uh, as you undoubtedly know, I was a, and have remained a pretty fierce critic of President Trump on issues of character and on some issues of policy as well. But I know a lot of people who don't like Trump's character, don't like what he says, don't like his coarsening of our politics, don't even like some of his policies, who nevertheless support him. Uh, I, I hear from these people. Sometimes they, um, sometimes they uh, 
write very harsh notes to me, <laughs> uh, but I hear from them and I appreciate and understand what they're saying. They're saying, here's somebody who will fight for us. Here's somebody who we can look to who will stand up to those forces that have cheated us out of a fair fight on issues that we care about. Uh, a lot of Republicans have said, well, the courts have really gone astray, but we're going to appoint originalist constitutionalist judges to the courts who will get the courts out of this so that out of these issues so that they can be resolved by the proper constitutionally prescribed means and then haven't done it. But Donald Trump, his supporters say, he's been as good as his word. He has given us those originalist constitutionalist judges that were promised by Ronald Reagan, but often not delivered, promised by George H.W. Bush, but not delivered, promised by George W. Bush, often not delivered. But now he's given them to us. A lot of people see Trump as a fighter for them. A lot of ordinary working people see Trump as a fighter for them when other presidents have um, talked a good line, but not delivered when it comes to standing up for them and for their values. But as you were saying, the courts are our least democratic institution. And so focusing so much on the courts, it seems to be a circular argument because we have a host of issues let's say, um, marijuana legalization, which I know many conservatives differ on, but there are states and cities that are voting to support marijuana legalization or decriminalization. And then those issues might go to the courts and the courts that could be stacked with originalist judges could say, no, that's not what we're going to do here based on their interpretation of the law. You don't know what you're going to get when voters make decisions. And I think that if there's anything that I've learned in my 32 years of being alive, it's that I have no idea what voters are going to do, and sometimes neither do they. <laughs> but it does seem interesting to me that for conservatives, traditional conservatives, who are looking towards the courts to basically say, you should be making these decisions among yourselves, among the demos. And then the demos makes a decision, and if the demos makes a decision, it's like, we should definitely legalize marijuana and we should decriminalize sex work. And this is what we want to do. How do you think those traditional conservatives would respond by essentially saying, like, we got the judges we wanted, but we still aren't getting the political or perhaps for some conservatives, more importantly, the cultural impact we wanted? Well, if you ask for constitutionalist judges and you get them, you have nothing to complain about when they respect the Constitution, when the Constitution allows people by democratic means to make what you regard as terrible mistakes. So I'm pro-life. If Roe versus Wade is reversed, this issue is going to heat up. It's not going to be over. It's not going to be that suddenly abortion is unlawful and unborn babies get protected. No. If Roe versus Wade is reversed, all that means is we're back in the democratic process. Now, I suspect that my fellow citizens in places like New York and California are going to use their democratic authority to do things, to create laws that I don't like, laws that fail to protect, that leave vulnerable to what I regard as lethal violence, unborn babies. Now, I have no right then to complain and say, well, you know, uh, this isn't what I bargained for when I ask judges to do the right thing and reverse uh, Roe versus Wade. Now, if somebody can make uh, uh, an argument that, that courts ought to interpret on originalist or constitutionalist grounds, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to protect unborn babies, a kind of complete reversal of Roe, the very opposite of Roe, I'm willing to listen to that. 
but I need to be persuaded by them that this isn't just conservative judicial activism and therefore hypocrisy, where conservatives are practicing themselves because they now have control of the courts, what they condemned progressives for practicing when progressives had control of the courts. So I'm just really here asking for uh, even-handed treatment with no double standards. We apply to the conservative judges the same uh, rules that we apply to the progressive judges. It's interesting, I think, in a larger sense, the idea that I think a lot of traditional conservatives have that they, they've they already lost. Um, that's where uh, Rod Dreyer of the American Conservative, he has the Benedict option. That kind of this, the, the idea that for traditional conservatives, specifically traditional Jewish and Christian conservatives, that the battle of culture has already been lost. And I think that that's where you're starting to see on the debate over pornography, for example, or obscenity, the idea that we can't persuade or use the culture our way out of this. What do you think of that argument that because liberalism or kind of the idea of liberalism is so widespread that for social conservatives, it's kind of like, okay, we just have to take what we can get or get the wins that we can have in these specific arenas? Well, again, all I want is for the Constitution to be respected. And uh, if it is, that means all of us, whether we're progressives or conservatives, whether we're pro-legalization of marijuana or against it, whether we're in favor of legal abortion or in favor of protecting unborn babies from it, we all have the same equal right to go out into the public square and attempt to persuade our fellow citizens of the rightness of our views. That's democracy at its best. That's deliberative democracy where we're able to go out there and uh, make the case to our fellow citizens. And we either succeed or we or we fail. Now, once we have laws, once our laws are decided, I think they should be enforced. We have laws about obscenity. I think they're pretty good laws. There are various ways that we could talk about that, that we could strengthen them or adjust them. We could, for example, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, Jane, um, uh, create uh, private civil rights of action uh, against por- producers of pornography for the exploitation of women or for uh, sex addiction uh, and so forth. But the laws we have on the books should be enforced. That's why I wrote to Attorney General Barr and just said, look, enforce the laws to protect people against the harms being done by pornography right now. Going back to our original conversation about obscenity, it really goes to this debate about the libertarian-conservative divide. Mm -hmm. And when I spoke with Reason Magazine's editor-in-chief, Catherine Mangu Ward, she told me, and I'll quote her, what you're seeing now is this rise of a much more authoritarian and state-oriented variant of conservatism. And it just says, you know what? Actually, never mind. Let's take away the bad choices. Let's make some bad choices illegal. This has long been a characteristic of the American left. And a lot of the conservatarian criticism of your letter or of kind of this overall debate has been the same Michael Bloomberg-esque, let's ban big sodas, let's use the state even in New York to encourage the common good by doing things that would arguably make people healthier, but also limit freedom. How do you respond to the idea that that's authoritarian in some way? Well, you know, we can toss around rhetoric like that, but that's not an argument. It's just rhetoric. It's just using a term in a pejorative way to smear your opponents. Those people, because uh, they want to um, ban obscenity or enforce the laws that we have against obscenity, are authoritarians. It makes it sound like they're just like Hitler. But look, that's no way to argue. Uh, Let's get down to questions of fact. Does obscenity 
or does it not, cause the kind of harm to public health and public safety as well as public morals that I claim it does? Now, if a libertarian or a conservatarian can show me that it doesn't, then I'll say then we don't need to act with the force of law in this area. But it's long past time, I think, that we can credibly believe that it doesn't cause that harm. If you look at the work that's being published regularly by the magazine Dignity, uh, edited by a, a professor of women's studies at University of Rhode Island, Donna Hughes, who documents the role, for example, of uh, sex trafficking in the porn industry uh, that has uh, published important work on sex addiction and other things. You look at the work being done, the studies being done by places like the uh, National Center on Sexual Exploitation. It's just impossible, really, with a straight face to claim that obscenity is not doing the harm to public health, safety, and morals that I and other opponents of obscenity are, are claiming that it's doing. Now, I'm, I'm not infallible. Maybe they'll come up with something that can persuade me otherwise. They're welcome to try to answer my arguments in the public square with arguments of their own. If they've got dueling studies, competing <laughs> studies, let them send their studies uh, out there. But that's what this debate should be about. It shouldn't be about name calling. You're an authoritarian. You're a libertine. That doesn't get us anywhere. Let's ask ourselves whether the harm is being caused. The purposes of government are to protect public health, safety, and morals and to advance the common good. We've always understood that. Every Supreme Court justice who's ever served on the court has acknowledged that. It's the core of our understanding of what government is all about. So then the question is, how do we do it? Is there a need for the law to step in? That'll depend on the harm. That'll depend on whether law can do something significant to ameliorate the harm. That's the kind of debate that we should be having. It's fascinating to me because I think, and I know this is not something that you've written a great deal about, but I'm reminded of how for uh, Americans who advocate for gun control, for example, they talk about guns as a public health crisis. And the response from libertarian-leaning conservatives or gun owners is essentially that doesn't matter because this freedom is enshrined in the Constitution. And I think that the idea of public health or a public health crisis, I think for some libertarians, the response would be like, yes, it might be bad, but should bad things be necessarily illegal? There are lots of bad things that people could do, lots of immoral or amoral things that people take part in every day. And my, I think my last question to you would be, how do we think about activities or actions that are immoral or amoral? And when do we think about when the government or when civil society should take action on those questions? We all have ideas, depending on our individual past or our religious beliefs, of what is moral or immoral. And the idea that the promotion of kind of a public morality really depends on what the public values. And as you said, if we all took a vote— on restoring or going back to the already on the books obscenity laws. And Americans said, no, we don't want to do that. You made the point that like you'd be like, okay, well, I've lost in the public square. But how should we think about when it comes to morality, which is such a, for many people, an individual decision or a very little platoon decision, as you said, how should we think about that in relation to how that, how government intervenes or how government is involved in that process? The question of the role of government is itself a moral question. And when libertarians argue for a very restricted, very limited role for government, maybe even just the night watchman state to prevent coercion and, and deception, they're making a moral claim. 
Uh, and the reason it's worth pointing that out is what that shows is that we cannot defend any position as to the role of government by appeal to moral subjectivism or moral relativism or moral skepticism. So if uh, someone says, look, morality is just subjective. You have your morality. I have my morality. Therefore, you shouldn't be able to impose your morality on me. That person has just contradicted himself because he's making a moral claim asserting it as something other than subjective, something other than individual, one that he's willing to impose. This should be the standard for government. Government stays out uh, of, uh, of matters unless there's uh, uh, somebody's specific individual rights are being violated. So it can't be on the basis of that. So I think we should just go back to what all the great teachers of humanity have understood. The role of government should be limited. Its role should be subsidiary. It has a role to play in the protection of public health, safety, and morals and the advancement of the common good, but that should be limited. Sometimes it's limited by constitutional constraints. Sometimes there are things because of constitutional restraints or constraints that it would be good, nice, valuable for government to do, but which it can't because we're not going to trust government with that much power. We've made that decision and constitutionalized it. All of those things, I think, need to be taken into account in this complicated debate about what we do. But there's no simple answer like saying, you have your morality, I have my morality. Therefore, whatever the, whether the question is obscenity or guns or drugs, the government should just stay out and it should just be individuals making their, uh, their own decisions. That's just a poor way to approach the, the question. If we're gonna reach in the end libertarian conclusions, it's gonna have to be after a, an argument that actually confronts all the considerations that would militate in favor of some limited subsidiary uh, governmental, governmental action. At the end of the day, it's really a moral question. Do we care enough about human beings, members of our community, especially those who are most vulnerable, in order to act using what's available to us, government, civil society, our own individual initiative to protect them. Government has its role. It's limited, but it's real. And where government has a proper role, where it has not uh, been, where that role has not been uh, de denied it by the Constitution, where the Constitution hasn't placed it out of bounds, then we can have the discussion of whether the government can usefully, can helpfully intervene in this area. And let's just have the debate. I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming I have a right to win, but I want an opportunity and I want people on all sides to have an opportunity to make the case to their fellow citizens in the proper forms of deliberative democracy. And then we'll see how it comes out. And if we, and remember democracy, the great thing about democracy, Jane, is there are no permanent winners and no permanent losers. Absolutely We can not. try an experiment. And even if it's got the people united behind it, if it fails, we can revisit it again. I'll have another chance to persuade my persuade my fellow citizens. To fight alcoholism, we decided we were going to ban liquor. That was prohibition. Very narrow exceptions. We're going to ban liquor. It had enormous public support. You need enormous public support in right. order to amend the Constitution. After a few years, it became clear that the side effects of this effort to ban liquor were terrible. Police corruption, a huge black market, uh, organized crime growing, and now suddenly the American people are willing to look at it again, and people were willing to make the able to make the argument to them that you know what it was a mistake. Let's go back and visit that again, and we had enough public support to amend the Constitution to repeal the original prohibition. So we can always keep keep coming back. Uh, so I don't think we have to be too timid 
in acting for fear that we'll lock ourselves into something henceforth and forevermore. Professor George, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Jane. Thank you. Thank you so much to Robert George for joining me, to Jeff Geld, our editor and producer, and The Weeds will return on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.